Welcome to Beyond Bitcoin, a podcast about all things digital assets, the global communities they are creating, the generations that are using and investing in them, and the challenges faced by the nations that are seeking to regulate them. The content of this program is not to be taken as investment advice. My name is Derek Graham. I'm the CEO of Portal Asset Management, and my co-host is Nitin Gower, Director of IBM Digital Assets and CTO of Portal. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world, and welcome along to another episode of Beyond Bitcoin. The weeks are never quiet in this space. And with us today, of course, our friend and colleague and, and consistent traveller, Nitin Gower. G'day, Nitin, and where are you? Hey, hey Derek. Uh, glad to be here. I'm in Boston, Massachusetts, east coast uh, of, of, you know, of US. I was in Davos last week. I had some work and of course, like you said, it's it's never a quiet week. So excited to talk about what we have on the, on the docket today and back to you. Nitin, I've got to tell you a few things and I want you to sit back and listen. Crypto has no real value apart from a shared delusion. It's just one big Ponzi scheme. It's got no underlying intrinsic value and it's all based upon the greater fool theory Ethereum, by the way, is the same as Dogecoin. Cryptocurrency is the biggest facilitator of crime in the world. And crypto, in fact, is manipulated by just a few companies. So we might unpack that a little later, but I just want to remind you and, and listing audiences that I live in Australia. And Australia, it's the realm of three big businesses. It's mining. And once we've mined, we then build houses. And the banking community helps us borrow money and for the houses and the mining. And then after that, the next industry is just like a huge freefall drop down until you start to get to anything relating to technology. And so therefore, it's a fairly conservative environment to say the least. And the conservative environment means those, I think, that are somewhat perplexed or threatened by this space can be very vocal when it goes the wrong direction. And that's what's happened over the last week. So to give you an indication, um, we've got one Australian financial review writer um, that used a few of those terms. And this particular Australian financial review writer is a specialist in fixed income securities. Well, of course, naturally, that makes him a specialist in cryptocurrency and tokenomics. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of this, like Lewis Hamilton, he's an impressive character, right? And he can get a car around a racetrack at a speed you wouldn't believe. We've all watched him. He's amazing. And I thought, why not put him in control of an A380 Airbus with 853 people on board? I kind of could imagine the commentary now and he's sitting in the seat and he's strapped in kind of with a five-point harness and he's, and he's just about to taxi and he's going, he's going, ladies and gentlemen, I'm taxiing down now the, the taxiway. And in fact, I've got this part kind of sorted, you know, because it's got a throttle and it's got brakes. And so the steering wheel doesn't seem to work so well, but I'm pretty good on the ground. But then I take off and I'm really not quite sure about what these other things do, these elevators ailerons and rudder. Don't worry about that. I'll handle it because I'm a fixed income specialist. And so I know how to fly an A380 Airbus. Well, of course, Nitin, you're a pilot too, aren't you? 
I am a pilot. Yes. <laughs> so they're quite different. I can drive a car process. too. <laughs> yeah, that's right. They're quite different to the process of driving a car. I'm really sorry. The listing audience has to understand that fixed income specialists aren't specialists in digital assets and cryptocurrency. They are obviously narrators in the space. So what of course has shocked everyone is that this crypto asset space has dropped some one and a half trillion dollars in value since the 1st of January this year. It's a lot. And a lot of people have got impermanent loss or in the case, if they are in Terra Luna, they've received permanent loss. And a lot of those are retail investors. By the way, an awful lot of them are sophisticated and institutional investors. But what we also have to put into some perspective is that during that same period of time, in fact, a shorter period of time, we saw the top FANG stocks shed over $1 trillion of value in just three trading sessions. So when the Federal Reserve raised the benchmark interest rate, everyone panicked. And of course, there was an extraordinary correlation between the world of crypto assets and the world of NASDAQ stocks. But the interesting thing is that as $1 trillion is written off NASDAQ stocks, much of it from, um, from Meta or Facebook and um, Netflix, no one is running around saying that you know, there's consumers that have been hurt, despite the fact that there's a huge amount of what you guys in America call 401k investors in that space. Um, but they are in this space. And this space is highly volatile. And it's something that is easily said and generally isn't greatly understood. So I'm going to ask you just a few immediate questions to, un to, to sort of answer here so that everyone gets some clar clarity. And then let's unpack this sector so that we don't all fall into this gray area that all crypto is the same. First question. Nitin. Is this going to be a rapid-fire question? Rapid-fire question. Okay, we'll do it that way. <laughs> Nitin, are all cryptos the same? No. Are all cryptos used as a currency? Can be. Are all cryptos based on no business model and no tokenomics? Hell no. <laughs> I'm assuming that's no. I'll take it as a no. <laughs> no. Okay, are all cryptos owned by a small number of big corporations? No. Okay, you know, we've really got to realize here that, you know, maybe what we're seeing is that, you know, the, the emperor is still wearing clothes and, and this space needs a little bit more investigation. So let's- You, you know, my, my, my favorite question that comes up yep. in every conversation is crypto used for crimes that keeps coming up in every single time. That we have. You haven't asked me the question yet, so I'm gonna I'm gonna wait till you ask me the question there. Okay. So I'll unpack it to the first one because one commentator in Australia said that the cryptocurrency is the single biggest facilitator of crime in the world. Yes or no to that? It's 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 a big vehement no uh, to that yeah. uh, for sure. So, so, mate, let's unpack a little bit of this. So you've, you've heard my rant about this. It's frustrating realising that there are people, you know, that are good at one thing and want to commentate on another thing. Um, yeah. and, and so often there's misinformation put out there. But this sector is many sectors combined. It's decentralised finance. It's Web 3.0. It's metaverse. It's this extraordinary facilitating of 
of providence transactions, which is the blockchain. Um, it's gaming. So maybe just a little bit of breakdown of the fact that this yeah. is in different sectors and what are they? And then let's talk about a bit of tokenomics so that people can see that this sector has profitable um, solutions in it and tokens in it. Yeah, no, no, I think I've seen this again. I mean, Christine Lagarde last week talked about this, that these tokens and these assets really virtually have no value. And she didn't go to the depth as this AFR article that you talk about, talk about is comparing Ethereum to Dogecoin. Um, so a few, few things in this right. One is I broadly categorize the, you know, the time we're in into four different areas because we need to make sense of what's going on. And to unpack all the rhetoric and all the messaging and, and the fact that Misery loves company and things are downward and everybody's you know, being an alarmist. Um, you know, a few things to understand is one is that if you look at the you know, global macro, so there are four things I can talk about. One is global macro, one is crypto macro, one is the linkage. And we've talked about this linkage via stablecoin on several occasions. And the third thing is the FUD factor. So let's address the first one, the global macro. And global macro, essentially, if you look at the traditional fourth asset classes that we have, um, you know, is the trading of global macro, which is the FANG example that you gave that, you know, one, one point X trillion dollars were wiped, up, wiped out and no one's being, you know, are, is, is alarming that as opposed to what we have seen in the crypto space. It's a strategic investment approach that, that you know, towards a variety of currencies, this is, you know, foreign exchange, commodities, fixed income, futures markets and the macroeconomic principles that includes you know money supply that includes demand and supply economic elements and it's based it bases its decisions on economic performance monetary and fiscal policies of individual countries globally and so there's a whole element of numbers that go into calculating how the economy is doing globally and and, and they come up with this whole element and that has a direct impact on crypto as well today as much as we would like to think that that the 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 crypto is decoupled. It's not exactly decoupled because we're still measuring everything in USD. And as long as we keep doing that, as we have talked about this in the past, we are still relying upon um, the measurements that US dollar goes through, uh, inherits some of the challenges into the crypto space. Second thing, which I think is not that often talked about is crypto macro. And I'd like to spend some time in unpacking that, is the approach that the factors in towards various sectors with digital assets and crypto spaces, for example, uh, again, in portal asset management, we've looked into layer one, layer two, we've taken the entire industry, classified them into 17, 18 different sectors. Some of them are layer one, layer two, layer three, non-fungible tokens, decent class financing or DeFi, Web3O, et cetera. And you know, this is sort of based, you know, the omnibus element of this entire industry based on, on, on its decision on economic performance, cryptocurrency valuation, the various crypto factors. We've looked into some of the, the new, new metrics, for example, the hash rates and, and the power that each country has in, in contributing to, the, to maintaining and upkeeping and securing the, block, the, the, the Bitcoin network. There are new metrics like Bitcoin days lost. How often are these Bitcoin being traded? How many hardness do you have? How many average holding and policies of individual countries globally and so on and so forth? So I think these are crypto macro elements, which is not one fully understood by the global macro people because global macro has been evolving for 100 plus years whereas crypto macro is relatively new and they aren't uh, as many one there's there isn't enough data because bitcoin and ether are the only currency that are about 10 plus years old the rest are fairly new so there's not enough data to compare these things 
that's one thing which we'll 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 revisit this at some point. I'm looking at that as second second factor. The third factor is the linkage, which is the stablecoin. Uh, stablecoin to me was a bridge where people basically bought their money from their banking account and on ramp off ramp. They're your favorite terms. And that money came into the ecosystem, allowing for people to be able to buy and sell, uh, you know, their crypto assets uh, with the fungible unit, you know, fiat, namely U.S. dollar and euros. And uh, it had a spillover effect that every time there's a contraction in the supply of fiat, it has now a direct impact on crypto, because there's a liquidity flowing in or liquidity flowing out of crypto which is what's happening now when you have a risk on risk off asset equation that is this that's under play at the moment and and crypto is definitely a fifth asset class as it's been widely accepted by the financial community but it also is a risk on asset right in the sense that when there's enough liquidity there's enough you know positivity in in the element that people are willing to take more risks and as things change then they have a risk off mindset that goes with it and then you had the ico fiasco these STO, which is security token offerings, is still for formatting its place in crypto. Uh, and then you have the truly decentralized networks. That's the linkage, which I think, again, uh, is tied to crypto America, not well understood. And the last factor I'd like to focus on before I pause here, Derek, is the FUD factor, the fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And that's what's leading to the sensationalization of the fact that, you know, um, that no one's written about uh, you know, the excessive stimulus that has globally in every single country has really changed the equation of, of money supply, the monetary policy impact, uh, the war effect has changed the availability of commodities. Uh, no one sensationalized those elements. It's become a humanitarian crisis as opposed to sensationalizing crypto because crypto becomes an easy target in such times. And I'll, I'll, I'll pause here, Derek, just to give you a perspective. There's a lot to unpack here as well. I'm happy to go a bit deeper into what the crypto macro environment impacts. And we haven't still talked about VC. The venture capitalist community is still pretty big on, on crypto investment. In fact, the highest amount of investment that's gone into is during these times, which to me, the bear market innovations are always, always amazing. Uh, FTX and Coinbase, all these are bear market uh, innovations that have come about and they have changed the industry for good. So I'll pause here and love to get your thoughts on it. Years ago, when I used to be active in looking at listing companies on the Australian Securities Exchange, there was a very simple game done that many people did, and that is they would buy a private company um, on a price earnings ratio of about five, and they would list it on the exchange in a price earnings ratio of 12 to 15. And the difference between the two was liquidity. And one of the things that this space has got is just extraordinary liquidity and very little boundary to entry. So in other words, anywhere, anybody in it at any time can buy into this space. And that's never been available before. And of course, um, amongst all of this is something that I used to regularly say and talk about the concept of ignorant exuberance. In other <laughs> words, just getting too excited about what this space might or might not do and in investing in anything such as for crying out loud the dogecoin because it was 0.0001 of a cent <clears throat> sort of thing oh that must be cheap so the challenge of this space is that is that the offering is so easy to access but the knowledge base is not there and and that's what is following behind in the slipstream 
particularly for the likes of the commentators in the press and media that might be, yeah. you know, fixed income specialists, um, because there's just not the knowledge to be able to comment on the space. Um, so one of the big accusations constantly, Nitin, is that nothing is profitable in this space. All of it operates on some sort of a, you know, eyes on or Metcalf's law only. And so maybe we could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, no, no. I, so I think two things, right? One is uh, even the thesis that we have devised over time, which is the risk model frameworks that we look into as we onboard an asset or as we look into asset bringing forth its proposal to investment community to say, let's go and invest in these things. We look in a bunch of things. Right? One is the primary driver of layer one protocol is utility. And this is where it's unfair, in my opinion, to compare Doge, Dogecoin to something like Ethereum where Ethereum has sort of layers and layers of innovation built on top of it. Whereas Dogecoin actually has nothing but, you know, an exchangeable instrument, which was one, there's no innovation happening on that, which mm. I think innovation is a primary driver in this industry. And if you look at many of the DeFi protocols, that's truly innovation for new financial products. Uh, what we have done with collateralized debt positions, what we have seen with centralized exchanges and decentralized exchanges, what we've seen with lending protocols, these are truly transformative and disruptive protocols and products that are evolving. Uh, whereas some of the projects which may have, it's a meme effect in the sense that it's been talked about. But if you go back and look into what's happening on these networks, are people innovating? Are people writing code? Are people building products? That is not happening on Doge. So while the technical underpinnings, which is the things that make up our industry, the crypto primitives, the keys, the networking, the computer infrastructure, all these things are basic building blocks of the industry, but that is not good enough, Derek. I, I think we do need a utilitarian model where suddenly now people are taking advantage of this infrastructure. And yes, there is a downturn. There is a headwind that the industry is experiencing that there's more liquidity being removed, which leads to reduced transactional volumes, which is leading to reduced valuation of, of, of Ether, but it still has a utility nonetheless, and which, is, which cannot be said about Dogecoin because Dogecoin doesn't do anything. Uh, and I would actually even argue that while Bitcoin is the oldest protocol and it actually has led the, paved the way for the entire industry in general, even Bitcoin, and there are some of the proposals in Bitcoin community, Taproot, for example, to bring the element of smart contracts, which is programmability, which yes. is what uh, Ethereum differentiated itself, to me, all these are one, it provides utility, it gives you something useful and meaningful to do. Second thing is it has innovation, it has new products, which always has a upside in terms of its consumptive value and, 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 and ability for people to innovate and develop and change the world as we, as we talk about quite often in this space. But more importantly, I think that the real value comes with uh, again, what we have looked into capital markets uh, in financial services industry, we're looking at cross-border payments. Uh, we've seen a lot of friction, we've seen a lot of value um, that, that can be extracted from the existing financial system with the innovation that we begin to see in this ecosystem. So I think it's, you know, the article that you referred to and many of the messaging and rhetoric that you'll hear from many of the global leaders, I think is either ill-informed or need a bit more education from our part as an industry to educate them to say, hey, the, you know, and I, I've always said this, Derek, that uh, Ethereum and Bitcoin networks are one, truly global networks. 
Two, the access to entry is very minimal, which is the intention of economic. Any inclusion, inclusionary agenda requires lower barriers to entry, which is the case with Bitcoin and Ethereum ecosystems. That if you have an Ether, let's say United States, and you have an Ether in Australia, and you have an Ether in Philippines and Vietnam, uh, the rules of engagement are exactly the same for these protocols. That your ability to lend and borrow and 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 engage in these financial primitives with the same return is exactly the same, regardless of which country you're from. Yes. Uh, yes. And yes, we can layer the regulatory elements to appease the regulators and policymakers for purposes of nefarious activities and anti-money laundering. But the but the point that should not be forgotten in this debate is that the true intention here is what information has done for, what internet has done for information, we begin to see blockchain and DLT networks do that for value, is lower the barriers, engage in global audiences participating, which eventually, just like what we've seen with information economics, leads to much, 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 much larger markets with exponential liquidity suddenly now because you're tapping into these small sectors of the economies, which traditionally has been left out. So I'll pause here to see if that made sense to unpack some of the value statements that, that have been made in the past in this space. So in 2009, the financial collapse for Lehman Brothers um, collapsed. I think they were about $40 billion, something like that. But the ripple on effect, of course, um, of the collateralized um, debts, CDLOs, um, <clears throat> was enormous. In fact, it was absolutely global and banks collapsed all around the world. Fortunes were lost all around the world. We've actually seen some 60% um, of value drop out of this space. And the only token um, that is involved with decentralized finance, uh, to my knowledge, that actually has collapsed is, um, of course, Terra Luna. So, and it collapsed because um, it was simply not designed uh, for this yeah. kind of impact. It was a black swan event for it. That's fine, shouldn't have happened, but it did happen that way. But Nitin, the dozens and dozens of well-known decentralized financial protocols that are operating off algorithms, there's no board of directors, there's no shareholders making it, taking a cut, there's no one walking out of the place in boxes with pencils in them because they've been sacked. They still are operating. They haven't collapsed. That's one of the intriguing things that we, that we think about. This highly volatile, but volatility, one thing, but many of these decentralized finance offerings are still going by the way. Um, and so, you know, there's this space has an ability to be um, robust and take these large levels of volatility. Um, but at the same time, one has to realize it's still extraordinarily young and therefore it's going to be this volatile for some period of time. The question is going to be, how does one trade in it? How does one invest in it? Yeah. How does one deal in it? Um, because so, it's going to be this way as it grows, isn't it, Nitin? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I would actually, uh, that's a great analogy, Derek. I, I would compare what happened to Terra Luna as, you know, an, an equivalent event of what happened with Lehman Brothers and GFC in 2008 and 2009 crisis. And I would say that it's, you can't blame the protocol or financial system. It's just bad management. It's just bad thinking and greed. And as I, I, I you know, you cannot blame DLT or blockchain I would blame the founders and I would blame the ill-conceived tokenomic systems that govern these tokens and the, you know, the ability for people, um, which is the participants. Um, I've always said this, that they, you know, what's missing in this ecosystem is participation. 
we are building a you know, participative economic system with Web3 or as if our underlying thematic element of what DLT represents. And I think that um, Lehman crashed because no one questioned and they were doing you know, bad governance, giving loans to people who couldn't afford homes. That's bad governance. They haven't done the due yes. diligence. Similarly, I think to you know, Lena, you know, uh, Terra Luna had done the same thing. They have looked into you know, bad governance and bad systems. And there were people who simply followed uh, the, uh, you know, had the halo effect on the leadership of the systems. And I also question the fact that yes, they had technical platform, but this wasn't exactly decentralized because if you have a system that relies upon voting and no one really cares how you vote for it and they're able to release seven trillion lunas overnight, uh, there's something wrong with the system that just because you're able to issue tokens doesn't make a decentralized system. There are yes. element of governance. So I, I, would, I would actually have a great analogy between the two events of what happened with Terra Luna and what happened with Lehman Brothers. To me, as we look into projects, as we look into projects, Derek, uh, in, in, as a part of a due diligence process, I look at tokenomic systems. I look at how many, what's the amount of code that's going to the project? Who are the participants? What is the, you know, how does a token get its value? And so for our audience, tokenomics is not a new term and I'm sure it's been thrown, thrown around nowadays like candy, but essentially it's a, it's a token plus economics and that, that's how the term is derived as tokenomic mm. system. Uh, how does a token get its value? Uh, the economic and the value factors that drive the consumption and creation of tokenized value largely driven by participation and consumption. Uh, those are the few, some of the tenets of how tokenomic you know, systems are devised and which leads to one, how a token is created, whether it's intrinsic. So all the layer one protocols, for example, which is cryptocurrencies are created by the process of mining or minting or staking. Uh, and then you have projects on top like the layer one, layer two and layer three protocols which are governed by some system that says the system can only have so many tokens and to generate a token, you've got to do these things, or I'm going to pre-generate these tokens, which is similar to what we have compared them to as securities. So you have all these factors that need to be understood and evaluated yes. uh, before you look at it. And I think all that is simply missing because I think there's this tendency that let's go and invest in this token, looks, looks pretty good. The white paper looks pretty good without actually understanding some of the, the mechanics of how this is supposed to function. And this largely leads to, you know, pre-dot-com era investments that people were, I remember I was in, out of, fresh out of college and people were investing in open source companies, hoping they would make it as big as Google back in the day. And, and we were looking at this and saying, how will an open source software make money uh, just because there's a company behind it. Uh, and 90% and of those companies essentially failed. They were trying to sell Linux under a different brand name. and. And uh, they had a massive, massive valuation. So I think there's a little bit of that education, which over time in security space, at least that doesn't happen anymore, because again, we have enough learnings, enough data to, to make sense, which is where the global macro comes into play. So now, as you mentioned, you mentioned price to earning ratios, you mentioned sales to earning ratios. We, these numbers help us navigate through soundness, resiliency and value for company, which is still not fully understood in the crypto macro space, which defines how a token gets its value, I think. Mm. So, you know, unpacking that a little bit um, and looking at, say, um, you know, the fact that, um, you know, the top uh, people regularly discuss 16,000 tokens. There are 16,000 tokens out there. Very quickly in the wave of a hand, 
um, this turned around and said there's 16,000 tokens and 99% and of them will disappear. Possibly so. Um, yeah. You have to give some perspective on it though, because of the 16,000 tokens, 30 of them are 85% of the entire capitalization of the space. So in other words, sure. they're embryonic. They're new ideas that have been released and their capitalization could be tiny or their volume of trade could be virtually nothing. But in this space, the barriers to entry to give birth to something are fairly low. And so therefore there's a lot of these new tokens that are coming out. What I'm hoping that we're going to see, and we've discussed this often, is that this is this borderless, boundless space where access is, is readily available. I think that's an excellent thing, but at the same time, it needs some guidance. I sometimes think about the space like a tempestuous, angry two-year-old child. And, and, you know, you know its future is going to be very good, damn good chance of it, you know what I mean? But you've got to give it some guidelines and yeah. we need to give it some regulations. What are your thoughts about that? And where, where should no, no, regulation I, occur? Absolutely. And actually, you know, it's funny because uh, I, I do work for regulated industry now. And, and the reason for that is be able to bridge that gap between one, educating and working with the regulators and helping understand meaningful regulation around this. Uh, and an element of investor protection, which I think is an important part of this whole thing, that I think you hear this enormous story, especially in Terra Luna, exactly similar to the stories that we heard during Lehman Brothers collapse or, or Bear Stearns collapse back in the day, uh, where people had lost their homes, their life savings, and you had surgeons. Yes. And these are, they are, these are not people who are educated people who are, who are professionals and who are, have high earning potentials. Even they have, Derek, uh, gambled with the life savings. So I think... Uh, these are there. There ought to be some moats uh, and education where there's an accountability on the part of investors. Uh, and again, I go back to the fact that you know Web 3.0 and some of these technologies should not be purely about gambling. They should be about participation. And while while some of the you know some of the centralized exchanges are are providing easy avenue to buy and sell these tokens, uh, there has to be some onerous in terms of moats and gates to prevent uh, and uh, and mitigate. Um, the you know to protect the you know uh, the common investors. So I would think meaningful regulation, both in, and again, this is going to be a it's an interesting thing to say. We need to regulate this, uh, which at the risk of not stymieing innovation, at the risk of not yes, um, you know. Uh, so I think in, in many cases regulation. there has to be some regulation, but we also have to let the industry, like you mentioned. We all have, I have a teenager and, and uh, you have to let them grow and learn and not, com, you know, completely provide much more, you know, guardrails so they can't explore uh, what's to come. So I think the sector in Terra Luna and many such ICO, for example, in the past, these are all lessons learned. So as I'm now looking at tokens from technical standpoint, I'm looking at what should you not be doing uh, and, and Terra Luna comes to, you know, comes to mind from that yeah. perspective. So there's a risk in investing in a two-year-old. Um, and, and that is that you've really got to get an understanding of, of you know, what the capabilities of that two-year-old might be. Um, but on the other hand, the alternative is investing in a 90-year-old, which is the traditional marketplace. And so there's a lot ahead of this space. But how do you monitor and how do you cope with that risk? Well, as I always say, and at the beginning of this video, you know, we don't give financial advice here. It's just Nitin and I throwing ideas around. Um, but it's clearly that one of the aspects of that space is, is you need diversification, you need some knowledge, um, you need to diversify across sectors, 
across um, types of tokens, across time gaps, and you need to commit for a period of time. You just can't predict what this space is going to be like in the next 30 days. I can't. I wish I could. Um, and, and so what you too get is you tend to get um, experts in this field that are from equities trading, and that works when they're trading um, <clears throat> when they're trading arbitrage, they're trading momentum. They're just technical traders. And it's just another realm of technical trading. Um, but if you're actually looking into the realm of tokenomics and sector growth, this is the realm that you really need to learn and read about. And, and I think that's an excellent thing to do because this two-year-old is going to grow up and become something quite impressive from our viewpoint. Um, and so maybe to, to wrap up and finish with the too many analogies um, is that, you know, let's, let's not forget that, um, you know, Lewis Hamilton is a hell of a driver and an impressive athlete at that too, but he can't fly an A380 because he doesn't know how to use elevators, ailerons and, <clears throat> and rudders. And, and I regularly use that story that when I first got my solo pilot's license a long, long time ago, um, the, you know, I went, uh, I got my solo license in about 11, 11 hours and 20 minutes. Um, and, he, wow. and the instructor said I was, I was average, which was nice to hear. Um, and, uh, and then I asked, of course, the famous story, why is that kid who's 16 years old, why did he get it in eight hours? Well, the answer is he's not looking for the brake, the clutch and the accelerator. You have to look at this space with fresh eyes and read about the tokenomics and read about and understand the space and, and then start working with people that you feel, um, you know, are, are best entry in, you know, best ways of entering the space, let's say. Whether that yeah. happens to be funds or ETFs or direct investment yourself, that's going to be your call um, or not at all. Um, but to sort of close up, during this period of time that, that um, you know, Four Corners has done a report on this and our, our famous fixed income um, asset specialist has done a report on this, um, Anderson and Horowitz announced a further $600 million yeah, investment right. into Web 3.0, taking right. their investment into this space to $7.6 billion. Do you really think they're investing in Ponzi schemes? Of course not. They're investing in technologies and the future. And, you know, we've seen $42 billion put into this space now. It's a huge amount in venture capital money in the past 15 months. Um, so we've seen a lot of money preparing for product. And what's interesting is we've seen the, in, the number of participants in the industry mostly, of course, from developing countries to begin with. So Vietnam, India, um, and, and, you know, we've seen Ukraine and, and, uh, and, and a number of the other Asian, Southeast Asian countries um, enter this space and take the user base from 120 million to 300 million in 12 months flat. Well, we suddenly find ourselves in the technology adoption curve. And these days, those curves go vertical. So we see no reason why we can't, where that won't be a billion plus in the next 12 to 18 months. Well, that would work well because there's $42 billion worth of product coming our way. So I hope everyone gets a sense that this isn't one big Ponzi scheme, is it, Nitin? It really is a complex macro environment. Correct. And I think until you simplify it, um, you know, this is an exciting and emerging and fast growing industry and we should treat it as such as an industry, which means it needs time to grow, it needs time to establish itself, and we need to give it wiggle room and, and some 
faith in the industry to grow and, and change the world as we have seen that with internet. So I'm, I'm rooting for it, Derek, as, as I know you are, but it's up to us, me and you, and like-minded people to stay focused and, and engage the community and the regulators alike to understand what this is all, you know, all about. So I'm going to do that. I want you to do it too. Yep, indeed. And keep learning and keep your eyes open and keep your eyes up um, is how we, how we look towards the future of this. Hey, next week, I don't think I'll start with the same rant as this. I feel much better now that I've vented my views on, on the frustration of um, journalists that really so is don't what's do going on, Derek? research. We're using this podcast to, to have you vent your anger. On these. This is anger management uh, on, on these podcasts. I don't know about you, Nick, <laughs> just... but I feel better. <laughs> anyway, so good talking to Derek. Um, great talking to you. We'll talk to you next week. Exactly. Bye for now. Ciao. We hope you enjoyed our weekly conversation. If you have any questions, comments, or suggested topics, please feel free to connect with either Nitin or myself on nitin at portal.am or Derek at portal.am. Feel free to subscribe and share with like-minded friends. Stay well, inquisitive, and engaged. See you next week. Bye for now.